Papillon. Yeah, right. I was thinking about that. I haven't seen. He was a yeah. someone who was uh, apparently wrongly accused and sent to that penal colony and escaped. Maybe it was, maybe it was based on uh, one of those things. Yeah. What was that? Well, there was a popular novel and a film called Papillon about. Uh, Supposedly based on a real incident of someone who yeah. escaped from Devil's Island. But maybe that is, perhaps <coughs> you know, in, in the George Simonot stories, the novels, Maigret stories, I found also Maigret, uh, Bougray is another name. You know, that was a terrible story. I was in Paris when that happened. It's terrifying. Maybe we should um, talk some about about your teaching. We've talked about a lot of different things, and you mentioned the uh, the. Uh, summer session in San Francisco when you started. Then I went to the new school. Well, uh, I guess we, we never we never got the story about, uh, you were introduced to the new school by Bernice. We never got the story about how you originally met Bernice. Why don't we start with that? Oh, very soon. You see, when New Halls, when the photographs were brought to the Museum of Modern Art, when New Halls started, to send me to different photographers, to Paul Strand, Bernice Abbott, to Life magazine, I don't know to whom else. And I met Bernice that way, was sent by Newhall. And McCosland was there and they looked at the pictures and apparently they liked them. And there was immediately this enormous contact between her and me. She asked me, um, do you think that photography is an art? And I said, I couldn't care less, but what else can it be? So we became very great friends, you see. But I did not understand Evert's photography or RJ's photography. She showed me pictures, I had no idea. I said to myself, this is the most boring thing I've ever seen in my life. I didn't understand it at all, nothing. So you would have met her in like 1940, probably. Something like that. Okay. Was she already living in Camer Street then? Hmm? Yes. Yeah, she's <coughs> so then uh, the first, your first teaching was in uh, San, San Francisco. Francisco. And well, you, you did that, I guess the, the first summer was 47? Something like that. And then you did it a, a couple summers? No. Just the one? Just the one. Just the one then. So that then, then your next teaching would have been at the new school. What, in the fall of 51? Something like that. I think we got a list from the new school just of the courses when they had been. That was all it was. Um, I don't know where I put it. I have it here. Do you have it here? No. Uh, here, yeah. The fall of 51, it said, the, just, these are just the titles. It said, uh, The Function of the Small Camera in Photography. Yes. Yeah. And Photographing New York and Its People. Right. And then um, advanced courses. And then it just was, after a while, it was just called advanced course after a few years. And that's, I guess, all it's been called. That's so just, just the title, you see, I mean. Yeah, it just covers uh, whatever uh, you need to do. So it was in uh, 50 or 51 when, when Bernice uh, suggested that you go to the new school, that she the way for you or introduce you yes, to someone? Yes, she introduced me to the dean. a very interesting woman, Clara Meyer, and we got along magnificently in Clara Meyer? Clara Meyer. She was one of the founders of the new school. And that was it, and I had to teach. And then I gave courses in, in wherever studio I was at home, in private students. You started with private students right away then, when you started yeah, the new school? Yeah, pretty soon. I couldn't live on the new school. What uh, part of this thing that Jim was talking about of survival is interesting? You know, this situation with survival, I've already forgotten that it was so unbelievably difficult that... Now, you were, you were teaching, what, <coughs> two courses? One course, two courses, one course here. And what, do you, do you remember what, the, what they would pay you for that? Very little, badly paid, and they paid me I can I cannot remember what they paid at that time their teachers, but I know that it wasn't much, and only little by little, 
They raised this my fees. A, this on a semester system, two semesters a year? Yeah. Or, and, or they pay maybe a, a $500 a course or something like that for a semester? Something like that. And then later they went up and up and up with me and then came a time when I declared that that wasn't enough and walked out. Now I notice on the list you study there's no classes that you gave between about 1953 and 1959. That's right. Is that what we cut? Is that roughly? The, is that just period? Because it wasn't paid enough. And then. <coughs> why did you go back? Did they? Did they? I'll tell you why I go back. Then Berenice stopped giving her courses at the new school, and the dean, Miss Clara Meyer, called me up and she said, "Take over Berenice's course." And I said, "It isn't worth my while." I mean, I make twice as much money with my private with my courses here and with my private students. But she called me several times and she really begged me to do it. And so I went and I did it, you see. And then from there on I was there again <coughs> and here. And then it was um, $700 or something they paid me. And when was that the hell? Maybe six years ago or so. And I asked the dean, who's a wonderful man, to raise the course, and he had promised it, and then he didn't do it. And then I decided to cancel the course. And that's when they went to town. That was 64? Yes. And I don't know if it was 64, Danny. I don't think so. Well, they, they have... Uh penciled in here after some of these courses, like spring and fall, 53 or No, both I canceled, canceled, for instance, I canceled once in a while a course at the new school when I wanted to photograph something especially important to me. <coughs> here in New York, you see, then I said, this semester I don't give. And they gave me the freedom to do that, even if I canceled in the last moment. Mm. And that was very, very nice of them, you see. And always saying, uh, yes, you, it, it is somewhat in the understanding of the new school that when a teacher has to do something very important, he can cancel the course. But I did it always the day before. Uh -huh. And the answer was always, it's a disaster, but you cannot be replaced. And they never replaced me. They lost the course. The new school was very, uh, uh, very honest and very appreciative of what I did. And then, and that is only three or four years ago, when was, just when I was at Berenice's place, maybe three or four years ago, when I had told the dean that I would not continue if he doesn't give me a raise, and he didn't answer the letter, and I canceled the course. And he called me up and he said, well, that is terrible. Couldn't you give the course? And I said, no. I was in demand in every school in New York. The School of Visual Arts, the Cooper's Union. <coughs> Nobody paid. And I had, and then they got together, Ben Fernandez and the guy has Annie, and they brought me in the most expensive restaurant in New York. Hundred dollars for a dinner time. I mean, a so bad dinner, you cannot imagine. <laughs> and they tried to talk me into working again at the new school, and they are, then they were ready to introduce the master course with me. And they offered $1,500, and now they pay me $1,800 for 10 sessions and two hours, which means $180 for two hours, which is, I think, the highest paid teacher I think there is in New York. And that, of course, and they, you see, they almost lose with me because the salary is so high. They don't lose because I have always the greatest amount of students. And, uh, and that's that. What, uh, in the same vein, what, what did you, when you first started uh, teaching private students, what did you charge them? 
You see, you can kill me off, and I don't know it, so I would have to remember. <laughs> we won't kill you. <laughs> I, I just don't remember, that, but it was certainly much more. And then you see the private students had to pay immediately when they came in. Yeah, and, then and six weeks later, business. And the new school paid sometimes. The course, the second course was beginning, and the first was not paid yet. That was terrible. Nothing doing. You started in September, and in February we paid the first course. In the, in the courses that you gave at the new school, uh, being a school, although it's a different kind of a school, you know, were, were you uh, required in some cases to like, give grades to the students? Yes, uh, I mean, I'm always required to give grades when they want it. So it's very unpleasant and very stupid. And they think so too, they're very... And the students have to leave 10 photographs for six months, so the authorities from other universities can come in, and I don't know, find out what. <coughs> and there are three grades, and you give one or two, and very rarely you don't you give a negative grade. And that's all. I have made it very simple. No. No oral examinations of that kind. I don't believe in it. I see what they do. Do you think that the idea of grading is really... Uh... I do not know that, Anne, because it's, it's completely crazy. Maybe they need the degrees for something else. And that's what it is. But you, you think that the grading, the grading is ridiculous? Yes. Yeah. I was caught in camera clubs many times. And when they said, now you have to give the prices, number one, number three, number two, I refused. <laughs> I cannot do that. When, uh, when you were teaching at the new school from 53 to 59, uh, you were teaching private students. Did you teach at any other schools? Hmm? Did you teach at any other schools, or did you just teach private students during that time when you weren't private teaching at the students, new school? Private students and the new school. That's all? Yeah. <coughs> and it was only several years later where every school wanted to have me, and the new school is very, very liberal. They would have never stopped me to teach in many other schools. Other schools don't permit it. But they paid so much worse. But the private courses had not applied. So, how many did, did you have the private students? Did you have like some classes where a number of people would meet at the same time? Of course, 12, 14. And then did you have another kind of situation where you met one on one with some yes. students? Yes. So, you had or both two, of those going on. Or two or small groups. And very often, of course, they took one course at a new school and then they wanted more. Mm -hmm. No, so a lot of your private students came out of your courses at the new Not school? Not necessarily. You see, when I announced that in the Times, at that time you could, now you can't, there are lots of students coming in. <coughs> you just put a notice in that you were offering a course? Yeah. So you can't do that now? No. Deshin did it when he was a critic of the Times. Yeah, he used to. He was wonderful. And Oh, I see. You can't do it free anymore. And now you can't do that anymore. Yep. There is no such a service. You could buy it. It would be very difficult now to make a private course, because where are you going to announce it? <coughs> and to everybody will come from the towns. No, it's very difficult. I would never do it. Hmm. All right, well, you don't, you don't have that number of private students now, then? It's less than it was at that time? Oh, no, I have private students, but I don't have private courses. Oh, you have just primarily individuals now. I charge a hell of a lot of money. You see, three hours, $150. Sorry to say so, but I have worked for nothing enough. And they learn something. You know, when they stay with me, and the private courses are this way, if they are advanced, and most of them are, not always, of course, I will let them work, and then I will let them decide when they come back. If they have enough work, they should come back. And I have one student now who's fantastically gifted. Two. And then others come in two, and so forth. 
But how, this how, how many uh, Protestants do you have at the moment? Total? Three. Just three? No, four. four. And in the 50s, when you were giving a course, it would have been like 20. No, this is not so. You see, I had a course over there, and then I had a course of 12 here, and then I had a small group of four or five, you see. Maybe once in a while a private student, but I, I didn't make the kind of uh, prices I make now. It couldn't be done. You said that, that during, the, during this time, uh, during the 50s and 60s, uh, Yetza was teaching private students. Um, and you said that frequently he would, uh, he would sit in on your... Always. And I was, I was painting in his courses, and he would sit in my courses. So, so you would you would uh, talk to his students and uh, well I didn't talk so much to his students because I was painting but he would sit in the courses and participate in the most wonderful way most interesting way do you have any of those those paintings that you did I yes well darling I have many many paintings especially paintings on paper by the hundreds he never permitted me to throw anything away <laughs> He threw his own paintings away. Can we see those sometime? You see, I don't consider myself an, a kind of an accomplished painter. I would say that I certainly could have become probably a good painter, maybe a better painter than a photographer, I don't know. But this is not worked out enough. <coughs> I just, I'd be very curious to see what your paintings look like. Completely, complete, complete, uh, just I have put them together with this girl who helps me to put them house together and God knows where they are and, and they were very completely different from my, my photography. Very cheerful, extremely colorful and, and lyrical and completely different. Yeah. Maybe I should, <coughs> couldn't find them now. Need to be but I do intend to paint. You know? You're going to start painting again? And I was very sorry that I didn't start to paint when my husband was alive, because I had interrupted now for several years painting. And I wanted, I wanted to start, and in a way, he was my teacher after a while. Mm -hmm. So now I have to be alone. So you hadn't, you hadn't painted since the 30s? No, oh no, I painted in his classes until maybe <coughs> five years ago, six years ago. You know, he had his classes every week or twice a week. But I mean, you didn't paint from like the 30s until he started classes in the 50s? Uh, you didn't do any painting? Oh, yes, those? I did. You painted some all the way through oh, there yes. until those classes ended. Mm. Hmm. No, no, I painted also before he gave classes. I painted with oil. And I painted on my own. He was painting and I was painting. So you've really continued the painting since, yeah. since you were Except prepared. for the last... No, but not in the last uh, seven years. Hmm. Then I suddenly didn't want any more the classes. In terms of your own teaching, do you, um, in the classes you give at the new school, do you, uh, when you have a, what's the size of the group? Is it 20 students or? Before it was 32, that was impossible. Mm -hmm. But now there is a law, it cannot pass 18. And already 18 is too much. I'm wondering, with a group that large, do, do you give the whole class an assignment? Mm -hmm. They don't do it most of the time. <laughs> well, they're like students everywhere in that respect. And yeah. what, do you give very general assignments or do you give them very specific? What's the nature? What would be an example of the kinds of things that you ask them to do? For instance, I would give them an assignment. I would, the first time, maybe give them an assignment and say, now paint what, now photograph what you really like best. Everybody has a subject matter what likes best. And then the next time I would say, and now I would like you to photograph something you have never photographed before. Because I would like one of the reasons this course is given 
is to get them out of routine. Because what they are doing is routine. They imitate all kinds of things they have seen in life, and then finally they imitate themselves. And they are absolutely in a rotten kind of a routine. And in order to get them out, I would say, and now photograph something, you have never photographed in the hope that because they have never done it, they would know how to do it. Yeah. And by not knowing how to do it, they would have to find a new way to do it. Yeah. And it happens once in a while. <coughs> Most of the time, they just photograph superficially the subject matter and are not interested. You see, every assignment I give has a kind of a uh, idea behind why I do it. And there are people who do it and there are people who never do it. You can't force it after all. Then I would say, well, then photograph what you want. But more comes out that way. Whenever I bring up in these classes, uh, I think maybe I had to invent myself because I never read a book in my life. Did you ever um, talk with anybody? Am I breaking your chair or is it just sort of sense? No, it's, 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 it's an awfully thick chair. It's ringing. I'm an awfully thick person to be sitting on it, perhaps. Maybe I should switch back with you. Why don't I switch back with you? I think it would be better. Really? I think I think I really. Uh, just here, just lift your feet. Yeah, this is a little more your speed. A little stronger for me. Can you see? That's all right. Put this down here because it's beginning to drive me crazy with the little noise it's making. Just get it out of the way. You know, about teaching, this is a bit. That one cannot be so very superficial about it. I, I think what I was starting to ask was, uh, did you ever talk with uh, anybody about teaching per se, like uh, Bernice or uh, Evsa or Ansel or anyone else? With my students. I would, for instance, say that whatever is said here you don't believe. And I never am right, but I'm suggesting certain things. And the idea is that the photographs are not the photographs of young people, but that are routine photographs of people who photograph at a very early age in the most academic and conventional way. So now what's the use of that? Because the only reason why an art can exist is because it does get out of routine and it, it is absolutely vital and non-conventional. If it's conventional, you do what somebody else has done before. Now, how does one get out of routine? And from that point of view, all the photographs are seen and the silence are given. And then I bring up, for instance, in one session, uh, the problem of how the eye sees and how the camera sees, and in which way one doesn't even look how the eye sees, one doesn't even look with the eyes, in three dimensions, you see. And in which way then they look at that, and then they don't even look in the camera in order to see how three dimensions are converted into two dimensions. And the difference between three-dimensional seeing and two-dimensional seeing and projecting a three-dimensional vision on a two-dimensional surface which is then the fact that the photograph is by no means in any way what the eye sees. Something entirely different and has to be. Or for instance, when I bring up the problem of perspective, which, they don't, which, they, which is inherent in photography because seen through a lens, the eyes are lens. And then they don't even use perspective in photography because they don't they don't see it. And with the eyes, you can overlook it, but the camera doesn't overlook perspective, and in which way that can be used. You, for instance, you see photographs by Cartier-Bresson or by Erwin's Ever, and you will see in which way they use perspective without even knowing it. 
But then comes a, another kind of session where I would maybe introduce the composition, where I would point out that such a thing does not exist, that the picture makes itself, that the photographer sees something and follows what is demanded. You see. I mean, there's no composition in the sense that you How can close teach is he going from what angle is it taken? What tonality does it have? And he is the servant of what has to be done and not making a pic out of a picture a good composition. Do you think that the, that the idea or the concept of design has any no. relevance to the No. Design? No. You see, the design comes about For instance, suppose I want to take a picture of you. Well, the first thing is that I would be interested in something about you. Now, I have to find out instinctively or not instinctively. You work with instinct, you work with unconscious, you work with the subconscious, you work with the conscious, you work with your intelligence, you work with everything you have. To find out what is it that I'm interested in and what is it that attracts me most. Well, it isn't this leg here. It certainly is around your face and your hands. And then I have to decide what is it I want? How close do I go? What do I have to eliminate in order to concentrate and to intensify? And out of that and the angle will come then what is called composition. But it is the content that makes the composition and not the sense of line design or composition. Mm. It is very simple to take a lousy picture and to make a, compos a good composition. And you can make 60 composition of one thing and it means nothing. But what impresses you presses the button. And this is a complete different attitude. And to go out to make good pictures is a disaster. To go out and make better pictures is a greater disaster. You have to respond to the impact of what comes toward you. And this impact leads you to place a picture in this or that direction. In other words, it has to make itself. It leads you. You don't make it. And then comes, for instance, the kind of a session where I may come to abstract photography, you see, and find out that in photography, phot uh, abstract photography is the imitation of painting. That's what Siskin does, and he does it very well. But it is not the abstract of photography, because nobody has ever found abstract photography. They have imitated painting from the beginning to the end. In the beginning, and then after, and after, and then surrealism, and then impression before impressionism, and then Mondrian. Whatever is done in painting is imitated by the photographer, and now vice versa. So that is then another kind of a situation. And then, for instance, a very important point would be to point out to them in a very careful way how neurotic their photography is and that it is only their own neurosis and their own fantasies which they project into photography, but by no means a reality of life and not the reality of themselves and not the reality of what surrounds them. And that has to be done very carefully because they are all neurotics and we are all neurotics and I'm not a therapist and I can only touch so far and so close then I have to let go. With somebody is insane, I cannot cure him through photography. I like to leave him insane. And for, that happens very often. They are definitely insane. And that shows up in the pictures? Oh, definitely. And I know. And that I have to be very careful what I say. And for instance, they photograph landscapes and objects and subjects, but they are completely disconnected from it. They use these objects and subjects for their fantasies and for their neurosis. But there is nothing there. And slowly, slowly come to this kind of a situation. And then I have a terrific article by Goethe, which Berenice also had, where he speaks about the subjective and objective art. 
that was a tremendous thing, and I read that to them. And then I show them photographs, which I consider on the one side, and then photographs which are so subjective that they become just what I'm doing here. And you see, what I'm doing here is not a painting. It's a scribble. Are these your own photographs that you showed? Never them? my own photographs. Are these well Photographs images? taken out of magazines, Man Ray or Berenice Abbott, and then subjective photographs like, for instance, Avedon, who is already very subjective, and for instance, a girl whose name is Nancy uh, Rexross, and, and others, and Japanese photographer, friend of mine, who photographs that way. And then I put these things in front of them. Mm -hmm. And I let them see what the hell that is. And you see, these are very touchy kind of things. Also, for instance, when students bring photographs in, which are completely meaningless. And to then make understand that it means nothing, that you can't destroy all the time. You have to be very careful that you don't destroy before it is possible to build something up. And in 10 sessions, of course, it's very short. Yeah, yeah. it's terribly short. Very short. You said that, that you don't feel that you can be a therapist no, through I'm not photography. A I'm not you, a therapist. I wonder if you, if you think that photography itself is a therapeutic thing for someone no, who, who has a neurosis. No, not more than cooking. No more than cooking? No, not more than cooking. Art is not a therapy. Art is an expression, but not a therapy. Can, can, it, be, can it be harmful, do you think? If, it's can, can it if, if it is done in a, in a negative kind of a neurotic and hysterical way, it is, can be extremely harmful. You see, for instance, I don't even want to put that on the tape recorder. For instance, I had a student at the new school, and then she came to see me, and she showed me her photographs. And I looked at them and looked at them and looked at them, and I couldn't understand. And I went in, in Jeff's place and I said to him, I don't know what I am today, I don't understand these photographs. I have to send her home. I can't take money for that, it's impossible. And then I said to her, select for me the photographs you like best. And she did. And suddenly I saw that she was using, you see photography is a dangerous thing because you have subjects and objects in front of you really facts, you know, a table and a chair and a human being and a window and a flower, and all these are real things. And that the combination, she, she couldn't find her way to the subject. And she couldn't find the way from the subject to herself. In other words, she blocked from here and she blocked from there. And out of that came insanity, putting together things which didn't fit, fit together expressions of things which were completely out of focus, then putting a, a face here and another thing over there. And finally I said to her, uh, have you ever thought of going into therapy? Because I don't believe in therapists. 99% are very bad. They do very great harm. But I said there is one which I would say I do think that this is an excellent kind of a situation. And she said, yes, I have always wanted to, but I never could find one. And then I sent her to a person who is an extraordinary kind of a person. And, and she is blooming. Mm -hmm. It was not a photographic problem. It was a life problem. And before yesterday, she brought me photographs. And I could see that she had tremendously improved in her private life, but not in photography. And I said to her, don't try to photograph better. Just do lousy photographs the way you feel them. That's all. It's a very responsible thing. Then point out something to them, which I think is highly important. And I always say that I have learned one thing in Harper's Bazaar. And that is that whenever you have to go out on an assignment, you have to be ready to do it, and you can't say, today I don't feel it, and today I'm tired, and today I cannot make it. You have to put yourself in action, mm -hmm. like a horse race. You know, a, a, a race horse, when the bell rings, runs. And the photographer, when he's in place, opens his camera and is ready for whatever he has to see. And then comes the experience of seeing. 
What is there here? And this and this and this and this and this and the lamp and the table and the and this kind of a blanket and that hand and this head and millions of things one overlooks. And then I train them to see what there is there. Millions of things to select from and to connect with. And that has been for certain people a very important lesson. That there is no such a thing, that there is nothing here. Yeah. There is. Well, where would be a, what would be a typical uh, field trip? So, always in winter, the Metropolitan Museum on Sunday, because they can only come on Sunday. Because it, it rains, you are outside. It's too cold, you can't work. It's too hot, you can't work. There is excellent light in certain places. There are people, there are children, there are monuments, there are paintings, there are cafeterias, a whole world. They put me in there for six weeks and I couldn't stop photographing. And they don't see anything and I don't blame them because I wouldn't have seen anything either, maybe at a certain time. So what, what do you... Uh if they, if they come to you and say, uh, I can't photograph your, uh, I don't, there's nothing here. Well, I, then I say, then I'm very sorry, but that is up to you. It's not my problem. It's your problem. Well, I want to go out and photograph outside clothes. I can only do some of Someone told us, uh, um, who was in one of your courses, I don't know which one, about a, a, a very nice thing that, that you talk about with respect to the, the different ways in which people see light. Oh, yes. What is, what is that? That is not in which different people see light. They don't see light at all. <coughs> you see, I would take a, a person in this class of light and I would take one light and then I would come from this uh, side and then, uh, then the face is illuminated half. It's like a portrait sitting set up. Yeah. And then a little step further and then comes in, the light goes a little bit over there. More and, and more frontal. And then comes a shadow here, a light spot here. And then I would say, go back now, watch the, this, this physiognomy or whatever it may be, it could be a chair. And see the change in expression. And of, it's a complete different kind of a person. Photograph from here, or from here, or from there, and from there. Could look terribly, thank you could look very beautiful in, with a front light, could look like a criminal with a light from underneath, could look like a business from above, could like a child, look like a child from this side. In other words, 50 different personalities with one light. And then comes another one. And they would scream by seeing what happens when one gives one light in 20, 30 different positions and in which way the whole situation is completely changed. It's not the same person anymore. And that goes not only for physiognomies and for, for faces, that goes for every object, for, for a tree or for a glass. And that's just one light, what one light can do. And they don't see light at all. You know, my wife was one guy in Paris, which when I went to a coffee house with him, I wasn't a photographer then. He would constantly watch and look, and he said, what the hell are you doing? I watched the lights. He was watching lights from the morning to the night. It's a tremendous uh, gift of light, you see. And this is a session which can be very, very important, and especially when somebody uses strobe or flashlight, where he has to give the light, not just from one direction, but from ten different directions. Seeing, for instance, the way you look now, and I can imagine the way you look when I come from that side, or from this side, or from that side, or from that side. So that is another kind of session. <coughs> it's very tiresome. Because 
everybody is always in a different kind of a state and everybody receives only so much and everybody at that specific time is ready for this or ready for that and not for this. For instance, the situation in photography was the instant. And that was the reason why photography fascinated me. A split second. And then I said in this kind of a stifling situation where photographers would in five minutes see what they said, I said photography is the art of the instant, of the split second. And then Hitch, Hicks stole the idea and wrote it in a book. In this book, uh, Words and Pictures? And then I, I wrote about that. Um, you just mentioned Steichen. We've mentioned him before. Maybe we ought to say a few words about him. Mm -hmm. he, uh, did you first have contacts with Steichen when he first came to the museum? Or before? Steichen was in Washington, the chief of the war photographer. Mm -hmm. But he had written about me in the beginning. And then I went to Washington during the war. And the new house told me that Stein was a terrible man. And so I decided I didn't want to see him. But then in Washington I met a guy whose name is McAlpin. He's a rocky fellow, you know, McAlpin. Yeah, right. Friends of the new house and so forth, and he knew him. And he told Stein that I was here, and Stein asked me to come over. Now how, how had the new house characterized Stein? It's just a very... They couldn't stand him. No, he was a very moody man and could be very unpleasant and very violent and in a rage and I don't know what. And then I said to myself, now that is terrible. And so I went to the Navy Department one day with my portfolio and every five minutes or five seconds another officer would take it off, open it up, look through, look through me. And then I went over that took to half an hour. And then when I came to study, he did something very nice. He took me by the shoulders and he brought me to a window and turned me around so that my face was in the light and he said, it's a long time I wanted to see the eyes who look so deeply in people's lives. It was very nice. And then he called his whole staff in and shows him the photograph. And then he said, I make a war photographer out of her in a second. Now, Stalin really did like my work. <coughs> Got along very well with Stalin. How early in the war was that? Huh? You know, this year starting was, huh. Bo was Beaumont Newhouse still in New York? Yeah, oh yes. The Beaumont sent me to Washington because I had a friend who had an empty apartment. I could stay there and photograph Washington during the war. A, a, friend, a friend of Newhouse? Mm -hmm. Was that Paul Vanderbilt's apartment? No, no, it was Betty Chamberlain who was the publicity. Was woman. it, um, it was sometime between 41 and 44. Then. Oh, definitely. Right, and yeah. Newhouse left for the war himself in 43 or 44. Now wait a moment. He was in the war. It was Nancy. Uh, who replaced him. So it was between 44 yeah. and 46 then, sometime, would have, because that was when yeah. she was at the yeah. museum. That's probably 45 or something like yeah. that. Did you know Nancy? Mm. I knew Nancy very well, and I liked Nancy. And I found her extremely intelligent and brilliant. And uh, I had much more contact with her than with him. Did you, did you, um, were you aware that she was a photographer at the time? No, she really wasn't a photographer. She only had learned the zone system and was interested in Paul Strand West and, and Ansel Adams and that all, that's, that's all the new hall knew. But you didn't find her difficult to deal with or No, or it was a great friendship between us. You didn't find her? I found her very sick. Yeah. You see, her way of speaking was very strange. She would start to talk and then came something else and something else and something else and something else. It's a typical schizophrenic kind of speech. <coughs> but very intelligent, very beautiful. At that time, incredibly beautiful. And I liked her very much. She was a real friend. She 
Well, when they went to Rochester, then of course I didn't see them anymore. But I'm wondering if, if her, uh, her drinking problem was bad right Not at that time, then. not at that time. So at that time, she still wanted to have a child. There was a great trauma with Nancy. She had lost a child, you see. And she still wanted to have a child. And uh, it didn't work out. And at that time, her, there was no drinking problem. Being in Rochester, was probably half the problem right there. Yes, she uh, hated it. They hated Rochester. You know, couldn't exist there. They were there a long time, too. Hmm? They were there quite a long time, too, yeah. as it turned out. Most people didn't like Nancy. Yeah, I know that Bernice yeah. is not overly fond of her. Not only Bernice, but others, too. She was pretty rough and you see, she really didn't know enough in order to take over the museum. And she had judgments and criticism, very harsh and rash, uh, toward photographers who were really very good photographers and she didn't understand them, you know, that, that didn't work. But there were no conflicts with me whatsoever. You know, I get along with most people very well. And I had the reputation to be very difficult and I'm not. I'm not more difficult with other people than I'm with you. Not at all. The new school and in schools and with students are no conflicts. So you met Steichen during the war when he was still in the, in the war office. And, yeah. uh, and Steichen came to the museum in around uh, 47. To the museum. To the modern museum. Yeah, and then I was always in contact with Steichen. And then beautiful letters from Steichen. Did he did he buy your photographs on a regular basis, kind of? No, that, so did, that didn't exist at that time. He exhibited them very much. Did he buy some that he oh, exhibited yes, he, them? Yes, he bought, for instance, he bought with his own money the traveling sh show, <coughs> the 15 photographs. And he then gave he gave it to the museum yeah. later? Yeah. What, at, at that point in time, in the, in the, we're talking about the late 40s here, in the early 50s, what was the price for a photographic print in those circumstances? Was it $10 or was it 25 25 25. In the beginning it was 5, and then 10, and then 25. <coughs> did you ever, besides these ones that it's like, were you ever, uh, at this early point, uh, like where you're still working for Harper's, able to sell prints the way we now think of selling prints? In my life didn't I sell a print. Hmm? Of course not. Nobody did. There was just no one buying. McAlpin didn't buy prints from you, for example. Uh, he was completely uh, Western supporter or whatever. I wouldn't have even understood that people wanted to buy them. When they wanted to buy them, I gave them to them. I wasn't very clever, of course. <laughs> but, but terribly nice. <laughs> well, you said you met McAlpin in Washington also, just yeah. on that same trip. Yes. Was he connected with the, with the Navy office at that time, or was he just someone? I think so. I do not know, but he was in uniform. And I had dinner with him. It was very nice. Since then, I never saw it. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, of course, in the last five or six years, roughly, maybe a little longer, there's been a tremendous increase in the viability of, like, a gallery selling photographs. Obviously, that has now become a thing that can survive, sometimes. Um, Who can survive the photography? No, the gallery. I mean, that before it was impossible to do that except as charity, you know. Definitely. Um, I'm not sure the photographers are surviving uh, that much better, but the prices have all gone up for those people that have some kind of reputation. And I'm just wondering, did, did you feel that that was a, a good thing when it happened? Did you feel something was wrong with that also when it happened? Or what was your feeling as, as you know, the market began to really start to exist where you could really sell a print uh, you know, in its own right rather than... Well, I think to sell prints is a very good idea. And that, that they should be sold for a high price is absolutely right. <coughs> because what's the difference between a painting and a photograph? The only difference is, of course, that a painting is a unique kind of thing and the photograph can be repeated 150,000 times. And this is why I feel that the value of photography should always remain on a mass basis. Or if not on a mass basis, of kind of a repetitious kind of a thing. But that doesn't mean that it should be sold for less. 
when you say on a mass basis, do you mean, are you saying that you don't believe that you should only print a certain number and then not print the negative again? Is that what you're saying? That kind of thing? You see, as a matter of fact, a photographer cannot print himself many, many pictures of the same kind. He, every year maybe he can print it again and then he make two or three or four and he's through with it <coughs> and it is already different from what he has printed. In other words, this mass production really doesn't exist when it comes to the printing. And printers like Sander, okay, they can make 90 photographs of one photograph that is already enormous. I am not very clear about, about this whole problem uh, of money and multiple images, I mean, many different images many images made out of a photograph, why that should be less of, of lesser value. For instance, Rauschenberg, you know, his son is a photographer and he wants to come and see me. And I have heard that Rauschenberg makes three, four original sculptures. He makes one and his son makes two, three others. They make four of the same. <laughs> Yeah, well, some, some people have suggested, and I guess some people have even done, I guess Ansel has done it once or twice, this thing of, of um, like printmakers do, of printing an edition, declaring it an edition of 50 or 100 prints, and then either destroying or canceling, scratching or uh, retiring the negatives. Actually destroying it. Destroying it. All right, darling, but you see, Sanders says a copy negative is never as good as a negative, you know. But then Peterson, who was a technologist in photography, said that he can make copy negatives which are going to be better than the original negative. And this woman with a shawl, you know, I lost the negative. And uh, Sander made a copy negative, and I don't see, I can't see where the difference is. Really? Yeah. In other words... You think it's a, the nature of the photographic process almost makes it so that if you destroy the negative, you haven't really ended the, the life of the image. Because Ansel has a little machine that punches holes right through the negative. All right. Mm -hmm. So he has a wonderful print, and somebody can make a copy negative. Of course, the reason he does that is for his And of course, the thing is, in, in painting, you do that too. There are people who imitate paintings in such a way that nobody on earth knows which is which. They don't know if the Mona Lisa is the original Mona Lisa. And I tell you one thing, <coughs> a lawyer of man <coughs> is a lawyer against the falsification of, of paintings. And I was once at Park Bernier Gallery and there was a meeting of all art directors and gallery owners, painting, museum directors. And there was a painter whose name is uh, a famous French painter. I forgot his name, I'm tired already. And he said he went to a friend and he saw the painting of his over there. And he said, where did you get that painting? I said, I got it in this and this guy. How much do you pay for this? An enormous price. He said, bring it out into the garden. He looked at it, he looked at it. He had seen this painting in his studio the same morning. He owned it. And he, he was, of course, a French guy. He was a kind of a Gallic woman. And he said, it was so well done that I said to myself, what's the use of spoiling his pleasure of going to the gallery and the whole money business, I let it go. <laughs> so well it was copied. Good enough, he would sign it anyway. It was such a good job. Suppose, uh, just for instance, um, you had an opportunity to, uh, your prints, uh, I guess the, the, the ones that Sanders runs were, were priced at about 350 to Yeah, but I sell them for much more. Okay, let's, let's say that uh, instead of $500 print, someone came to you and said, if you will destroy these negatives, if you will print 20 prints of each of these negatives and destroy them, I can get $2,500 print. Would you do that? I think it would be an excellent idea. What do I need this negative for? <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I had one print that's enough. But you see, that is a joke because the principle, of course, is somewhere else. Suppose I have one or two prints, very good prints of a photograph. I mean, I don't need more than that. I'm not going to print it 160,000 times. But on the other hand, that is not the problem. The problem is really, is that right? Is it right to do that? And I must tell you frankly, I don't think so. You mean, is it right to destroy the negative, or is it right to yeah. charge that amount because you're destroying it? You see, it's a question of competition because everything which is very rare in this world is very expensive. Silver is less expensive than gold. Gold is less expensive than platinum, and so forth and so forth. And if there is a stone that is only one stone and not more, and it's a fantastic stone, then it will be going in the millions. But that is a very human, human, uh, that is in connection with our civilization and has nothing to do with any value. Owning what no one else can have. Yeah, and that, that is a maybe very uh, superficial kind of an evaluation of something. Yeah, that was really what I was asking, is how do you feel about about artificial scarcity. Artificial scarcity. It's really what you can't say the negatives about. I feel that this is probably very wrong. When um, some of these galleries were starting, like when Lee Whitkin started, he was one of the first who made a go of it in New York City. Did he come to you and ask you to He came to me. He always asked me to exhibit and so forth, and Berenice always told me, <coughs> give him your photographs. He sells, he sells. I never wanted to. Why? I never wanted to exhibit. I didn't want it to be so. Don't ask me. I don't know that. I was so far away from all that. So he came and asked you and you just... Oh, he asked me many, many times. And then he really got mad at me. And he's right, because I, I just refused and refused and refused. But there was a time when I didn't want to exhibit, when I didn't want to do anything, when I... What the hell? He's selling a picture for what? I, I didn't even want that. But that is, that is a personal kind of a, I would say, somebody who wants to go ahead photographing and doesn't have enough time to do it and rejects everything in this respect. <coughs> what, what made you change your mind um, with the Sandra Gallery and decide my to... Perfect, my personal liking of him, nothing else. It was rather for me not a good thing to start out with a small exhibition in Washington instead of starting out with a big exhibition in New York when I wanted it, which I could have. And Marlboro and Janice and Helios Galleries, they all want me. And I should have one day a large exhibition of, let's say, 80 prints. I don't believe in 150 prints. Nobody can see that. <coughs> yeah. And then they have the repetition anyhow. And this is what I should have done. But I liked Sandra so much that I said yes. And then I said to myself, where is Washington? Nowhere. Who's going to see it? Nobody. You know? I made a little mistake. Do you think that was a, a mistake starting with that? I mean, in terms of the show? Uh, it, had, it had a repercussion, you see, but not the right one. Because then came all these write-ups. She hasn't exhibited in 25 years, and this is all she has. 21 pictures, you know. Oh, you mean this uh, <coughs> in America? All these uh, lousy write-ups and, and this and that and that. It couldn't have happened. And then I told him immediately that I did not want any other small show, because they were immediately in demand. Mm -hmm. It is either a big show in New York or nothing. Well, I don't, that, do you think that will have a, a, a negative repercussion with the places that you would show in New York? No. Probably not. No. They still yeah, on the contrary, they want now to have a big show. Are you going to do that sometime in the future? Sometimes, yes. But only when I want it. What about some of these other... Galleries, uh, <coughs> like, did Harold Jones come to you when he was starting and asked if you were interested? When you were starting Light Gallery, when he was helping organize that? Yeah. I mean, years ago? Mm, like four years ago. Did he come to you after they got going and, and ask? Or? Light Gallery was not for what I was doing. Okay. And in, in the 50s, there were a couple of galleries that tried to make a go of it in, in this part of New York. Uh, one of them I know was, uh, I spoke a little bit to a man named Larry Siegel oh, yes. about Image Gallery. Were you ever associated with that gallery or? I didn't want it. Did you ever go there and see and look at the work? Sure, other people were. Because I think Bernice had some work there at one time. And yes, but I didn't want any gallery. 
absolutely not. I wanted to have a combination of all the pictures I had done, where I don't know half of them, and of something new I was doing. And I did not see any reason to have an exhibition before. And I think I was right. Or maybe not, I do not know. Was, was part of your feeling about showing in galleries a result of of uh, Yass's uh, experience with the galleries? No, 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 no. Oh, no. Yeah. I had no desire to show my photographs, but I never had. It was always taken away from me, taken away from me. You see? How about, uh, there was a show that you...